Bruce. Welcome to Speak and Destroy, Episode 4. I am your host, Ryan J. Downey. Speak and Destroy is a podcast about all things Metallica, by Metallica fans, for Metallica fans. This episode, I'm digging into my personal interview archives for a lengthy, in-depth conversation with the metal god himself, Rob Halford, frontman for Judas Priest. Priest, of course, was a massive influence on Metallica, and the two bands have a friendship that goes back a number of years, and a lot of mutual respect and admiration for one another and what each band has accomplished and contributed to the great cause of heavy metal. Halford, of course, whether it was with his first post-priest band Fight, which was very sort almost sort of Pantera-inspired, to the band that he did called Two that was on Trent Reznor's Nothing Records imprint of Interscope that was much more experimental and sort of industrial. He's got a diverse range of taste and opinions. He also knows a lot about metal. I mean, the guy is just an ambassador for this for the whole culture, the community. Everything metal is defined by Rob Halford. I mean, Halford's the guy who brought the, you know, leather boy BDSM shop look from England and from bars and nightclubs onto the heavy metal stage. I mean, when you think leather studs, spikes, that's Rob Halford. That's Judas Priest. And that, thanks to Rob Halford, is synonymous now with heavy metal, heavy metal music and culture. Halford is always in the know about up-and-coming metal bands. I mean, the guy likes Emperor. He likes August Burns Red. He likes Whitechapel. Uh, the latter two bands both come up in this conversation you're about to hear. I sat down with Rob Halford in August of last year at the Musicians Institute here in Hollywood, California. Musicians Institute has been kind enough to have me on hand for their conversation series, which has been a series of Q&As with different artists over the last couple of years. Absolutely, hands down, my, my number one favorite was getting to do this Rob Halford Q&A. What you're going to hear, it's Rob Halford and I going very in-depth into the history of Judas Priest, talking about everything from the PMRC trial to the Turbo record. Uh, and this is in front of an audience of rabid Priest fans. Now, the audience isn't necessarily mic'd, and yet you can still hear their excitement through Rob's mic and, and my mic. And then there's uh, some Q&A towards the end uh, where we take some audience questions. It was a very wide-ranging conversation. It was so much fun. I had an opportunity to meet Halford uh, backstage at the Alternative Press Music Awards last year where he performed with Baby Metal. I also got to interview Baby Metal and Halford together. But just talking with him a little bit during the show backstage and about how we'd be getting together for this MI conversation thing. I know everyone says this about him and let me just be the millionth person to put it out there. Such a gentleman, such a badass, such a legend, so cool, so down to earth, really interested and curious, you know. Sometimes when you meet a legendary, iconic frontman for some massive band, sometimes they're really cool, but that doesn't mean that they're interested in you. They're just kind of cool to the extent that you're interested in them. But Halford's a guy that has questions, you know, and, and tells amazing stories and wants to hear your dumb stories. I got to see Halford perform with Metallica at the Revolver Golden Gods Awards a couple of years ago. My good friend Josh Bernstein, huge coup for him getting Metallica to headline that thing. And of course, you know, something that would always happen at that show traditionally is bands would have guests and do these duets. And Metallica 
brought up Halford for Rapid Fire, one of the greatest Priest tracks. They had Halford on stage again when they did the multiple night stand in a small venue, you know, small for them in San Francisco for their 30th anniversary a few years ago. That's actually available if you want to go buy an MP3 of that from the Metallica website. There's so much, there's a trove of Metallica live recordings from every stage of their career going all the way back on their website. I recommend getting all those 30th anniversary shows with all those guests. They had King Diamond, Geezer Butler, Ozzy Osbourne, Glenn Danzig, you know, guys from Death Angel, so many guests and such a deep dive into their catalog. But certainly having Halford there again was was a treat both for them and for all of us fans. I was thrilled and amazed and ecstatic to get to see Metallica's to get to see Metallica's secret show during San Diego Comic Con a couple of years ago. They were there promoting the uh, Through the Never 3D film, which was had either just come out or was about to come out. I got to sit down and speak with Kirk Hammett for a good amount of time for an interview for MTV News, and then was able to score some tickets to go see them in like a 1,200, 1,500 cap room in San Diego. So of course, you know, a show like that. During an event like Comic-Con, you know, the guy who plays Daryl from The Walking Dead was there. Of course, Brian Posehn was there. You know, you look around, you see these people. Um, I saw Bradley Cooper. The dude was rocking out the entire time playing air guitar, air drums, knew all the words. He is a legit Metallica fan. I've seen him at Metallica shows since then. I think I've actually talked about that on the podcast already. He's the real deal when it comes to Metallica fans, which is awesome to know because he's a cool actor. My point, though, is that Rob Halford was at that show and seeing him in the balcony sort of adjacent to where my friends and I were, I mean, it just, you know, obviously blows away any other quote unquote, you know, celebrity sighting at a show like that. But man, getting to watch Metallica in a small room, blowing my eardrums out, being super psyched, being with some of my best friends at that show, and being able to look over and see Halford watch Metallica while I'm watching Metallica. Just total fan bliss and amazing. A couple of things quickly before we dive into this interview. Rolling Stone has put up a list of the 100 greatest metal albums of all time. First of all, I would just direct you to go there. My buddy Corey Grau, who's one of the writers there, was a huge part in this. I assume he probably spearheaded it. He's definitely like the metal dude there these days. It's a great list. You know, lists are made to be argued over. No one's ever going to be totally satisfied by them. You're always going to be mad about something that was included or something that was excluded or the placement of this or that or why one particular record from a band is on there and not another, and so on. I would recommend going to rollingstone.com and reading a little bit about how they put this list together. They've also been unleashing a series of podcasts with 
some of the people who contributed to that list, as well as some of the individual lists from some of these individuals. One of the first ones that went up was Lars Ulrich's list. Lars Ulrich's top 15 metal records of all time. He kind of took the gentleman's way out by putting them in alphabetical order instead of instead of listing them by order of preference. But, you know, he's got Guns N' Roses, Appetite for Destruction on there, Alice in Chains, Dirt, Deep Purple, of course, Iron Maiden, Number of the Beast. And right there on that list is Judas Priest, Unleashed in the East. This is what he says. This is Judas Priest at their early peak. With a lot of harder rock and European bands, there came a point where they wanted to crack the American market and started writing singles, shorter songs, and not necessarily in a bad way, but some started deviating from their point of origin. This is just Judas Priest at their absolute best in a live situation before the hit singles. There's a lot of deep cuts on it from Sad Wings of Destiny. Obviously, there's the legendary Victim of Changes. It's just the energy and the chugging riffs and downpicking, like with Deep Purple's Highway Star in it. They were probably the first band, along with ACDC, that had two guitars that were playing the same thing. Other bands like Motorhead and Deep Purple had one guitar player and they were doing different things, more of a layering thing, but when it came to Judas Priest, they had the guitars coming together and playing the same riff. It just doubled it up and gave it a heavier, bigger sound and made it thicker and more immersive. And he goes on to say more about Unleashed in the East. And you're welcome. I didn't try to do a Lars accent or impression right there. So shortly after that went up, you know, a day or two later, Rolling Stone put up the personal list from Rob Halford, his 10 favorite metal records. And he actually did put his in order. His number one record was Black Sabbath's self-titled debut album, you know, which is hard not to put at number one given its historical importance and the fact that it is essentially, for all intents and purposes, the first heavy metal album. Right behind it, at number two, Metallica's Kill Em All, which he says was full-on thrash energy that led the USA charge. So Metallica's debut right there, right behind Black Sabbath's debut on the Metal Gods Top 10 Metal Albums of All Time. Amazing. Which reminds me, I'm giving away a deluxe collector's edition reissue box with a hardcover book and all sorts of extras of Metallica's Kill Em All, courtesy of my friends at Warner Music. As soon as we've got 100 reviews on iTunes, I'll either have a little team of judges pick the best review or we may even just pick it at random, but someone who writes a review in the iTunes store of Speak and Destroy is going to win this collector's edition numbered deluxe Metallica Kill Em All box set, courtesy of Warner Music. Reviews matter, because the more reviews there are, the higher the visibility in the iTunes store, and the more people will discover Speak and Destroy. I'd like to give a shout out to all my friends and the whole team at the Musicians Institute in Hollywood, a great school, a place that puts on great events for their students and for the public. It's been my honor and my pleasure to host a number of Q&As there, and again, this one being one of my, if not my number one absolute favorite of them so far. Rob Halford of Judas Priest. If you want to see a video version of this, it's broken up into five or six parts. It's available on YouTube. You can go find it. But for now, enjoy my in-depth Q&A with Rob Halford of Judas Priest from late last year. Here it is. The man that I'm about to bring out needs no introduction, but I'm going to introduce him anyway. Two words. Metal. 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 
Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Rob fucking Halford. Already, you've outrouted any other crowd we've had for one of these. As advertised. So if you haven't been to one of these before, a little bit about what we do is we just have a very uh, fun conversational discussion um, about really a wide-ranging number of things, going all the way back to the origins and figuring out, uh, in this case, how one becomes the metal god. Uh, and then we'll take some questions from y'all, so be sure to come up with some good ones. And I'll let you know when it's time for that. Yow! I was saying backstage, I think I'm having the male menopause this evening. <laughs> Whatever. Hot sleeper. Yes. Thank cool. you. Sir. Hello, Ryan. I saw Ryan two weeks ago yep. at the baby metal thing. In, um, Did you guys see Rob Alford with Baby Metal? I saw that was pretty cool. Check. A lot of people hated me after that, you know. Which is, whatever, whatever. My my philosophy in life is do everything that you want to do and don't let nobody try and stop you, because you know you're living your life for yourself, and that's, that can be kind of dangerous territory in the music world because our fans, who I love with all my heart. Um, are like family, and when you're in a family, you have you're very opinionated. What are you? What is he wearing? You know that kind of yeah. thing. It's what like people with, with baby sports metal? teams. No, you know? I'm just you know, yeah. I just want to do it because they asked me, and I think they're pretty cool. And that was that. So, end of story. Then he got to blabbermouth, and there's like five thousand. Fuck you! Fuck you! Fuck you! <laughs> but for every five thousand fuck yous on blabbermouth, there's five hundred thousand people that saw it and went, "That's fucking cool." Didn't say shit. <laughs> <laughs> so, I always like to keep that in mind. Um, yeah, so one of the things that I'm really interested in talking with you about that's been a fascination of mine as a lifelong fan of heavy metal, what makes Birmingham so fucking metal? Like how, <laughs> like how, you know, what was it about this place, this soil, this industrial, that produced all of these legends like yourself? You know, I really feel blessed that I, that I was born and raised in that part of the world because um, there, there are lots of discussions about where heavy metal came from, what was the first heavy metal sound. Some people say it was Blue Cheer when they did Summertime Blues, which is a really, really heavy track. But uh, in essence, for me, it was when Tony detuned his guitar after the, the accident and those first really heavy riffs started to come out from, from him, from Birmingham. Um, but you've got, to, you've got to try and put your mindset back to a place, when I was born in 1951, that we, we still kind of had the residual effect of World War II, that horrible World War II. So um, a, lot of, a lot of the UK was recovering, you know, rebuilding from um, all the terrible uh, destruction. And so it was with, um, 
with Birmingham. And Birmingham at the time was kind of becoming this, this shining mecca of concrete and steel, uh, which was a great thing to talk about until you actually saw it, you know, and they actually tried to make it a modern city by building a freeway that went through the heart of the town, thinking everybody's going to stop. Well, they didn't. They just kept going south to London, <laughs> you know, which was a disaster. But um, because I think we were, musically, we were coming through um, the back end of that really incredible um, electric rock experience, uh, a lot of it coming from America. I mean, Hendrix, for example, was the first guitar player that really turned things up, you know, because technology was advancing and martial amplifiers were being made and everything was getting louder and more intense and crazy. And um, so, you know, growing up and living through those early developmental times of, of, of Birmingham and the New, the new England, um, like a lot of kids, I was trying to find my place in music. What did music mean to me? You know, what could I get out of the music that I was listening to? And even then, I was drawn to anything that was louder than anything else. Lemmy. Yeah. So um, it was just that it was just that sense of wanting to um, break out. You know, get out of the hood, the neighbourhood, whatever whatever you want to call it. You know, there was that part of 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 the UK that was still pretty bleak, you know, even I was though say, it was growing. I think growing. it was fair to call that a hood at yeah, that time. Yeah, Birmingham, so, yeah. you know, it, it was just like a lot of musicians, you, 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 the music gives you a, a, an ability to, to be free. You, when you play in a band, you have this incredible sense of escapism and freedom. And I think that's what a lot of the players around the Midlands were doing, not only metal, because we had like the Moody Blues from there and obviously Robert from from Zeppelin and um, ELO, um, The Move, um, all of these incredibly talented musicians that were just like most musicians trying trying to break free. But I don't know what it was. I think I think the the other reason for me was always that when the Beatles became famous, they were from Liverpool, and in that time you had to go to London to be a success. But they said no, we're from Liverpool, you know. And when they became famous, I think that sent a message to musicians all over the UK that you didn't have to be from the big smoke, as it used to be called. You could, you know, you could find your, your, your fans, you could find a, a club, a place to play. You didn't have to go like 200 miles south. So um, the tradition carried on by like Oasis and Morrissey and that's right about so Manchester. The whole, and, yeah. yeah, exactly. So the whole thing, the, this dividing line that still is there in, in the UK, you know, once you go north of the Watford Gap, as it's called, there's something supposed to change, which I never quite understood that. You know, you, you're going back to the class system, you know, upper class, middle class, lower class, and it was a terrible thing, a struggle in, in the UK. It's not, not so much now, but it's still hints of it there. So all of those things compounded, I think, Ryan, were, uh, were the result of, of bands like Priest and my uh, Priest and, and Sabbath, um, you know, wanting to to make a noise and, and it happened to come from the Midlands. And the world was forever changed for the better for a lot of us. So who were some of the, uh, you know, you mentioned Hendrix. Um, what were some of the things that you found early on that really gave you that fire to say, I want to create something like this or something that evokes this same feeling 
It's, fu it's funny you should say that word fire because I instantly get a, get a, 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 a guy in my head going um, Arthur, the crazy world of Arthur Brown who had a song called Fire and he used, to, he, he used to make appearances on this TV show we used to have called Top of the Pops which is a bit like American sure. Bandstand. Yeah. And this guy was insane, you know. I mean, nobody ever seen anything like him. He was like Rasputin, the Mad Monk. And he used to wear a crown of fire on the, te on the television, you know. This is before anybody's, before Ozzy and Manson, and you know, everybody's like, well, get that thing off the television, You're corrupting the children of, of, of England and all that kind of thing. It was incredible. So I was drawn to that, like most young people. I want that, that's the guy. I, that's the guy there. You know, I don't want the, the other thing that's too soft and tame, you know? So, um, and I actually saw him, I, I saw him do a show in my home, my hometown is Walsall, which is about nine miles away from Birmingham City. And I actually saw him perform at, um, at a college, I think it was. And he had a full-on show, you know, I don't know where he, he got these incredible people to make, like galleon fighting ships. The roadies would dress up as galleon fighting ships and they'd just go crashing into each other while he was singing around them, just doing all this crazy psychedelic rock and roll stuff. And so um, that was me. I, I loved anything that had spectacle that left you with a visual memory as well as an audible memory. Um, so yeah, you know, the, the loud people, whether it was Arthur Brown or uh, obviously what Hendrix was doing. Um, from, a, from, a, from, mu from a musical point of view, I was always drawn to really talented players, you know, like the Cream with, uh, with um, Eric Clapton and Ginger Baker and Jack Bruce, that kind of stuff, you know. Anything that really, anything, but still now to some extent, I love to listen and, and look at people that have really put some time into doing what they're doing, you know? That's why I love lead guitar players. I love Richie and I love Glenn and Keiko, the way that they really work hard to make things special, you know? So um, a mixture of all of those people. And it wasn't always, wasn't always heavy stuff as a singer. I, again, I've, I've I've always had a very open mind to um, appreciating every kind of vocal performance. Yeah, and that was actually my next question. Um, <clears throat> what made you decide uh, that your voice would be your instrument versus uh, you know picking something else up in a band? I don't know. Again, I, I guess just because a lot of musicians we we kind of emulate each other. You know. Um, what, what is a heavy metal singer? I mean, what, what was a heavy metal singer in 1969, you know? I mean, if someone asks me what is a heavy metal singer, I, and I'm not just saying this because you're sitting here, I say Rob Halford, so. What was her before that that was, you yeah. know? <laughs> when I, um, <laughs> I mean, I'm not, you know. The, the reason I'm saying that is that, again, musicians always look to, we always look to each other, you know? Guitar players look to, certain guitar players, drummers, bass, whatever. But as far as metal singers, I, I, I personally didn't have any, any I, did, I didn't go, that, I, I'm, I love what that metal singer's doing over there, because there wasn't any. You know, there wasn't any. I mean, I will always, I'll always um, put my friend Robert Plant at the top of the heap for me, only because he, he just went the extra nine yards. When he started, you know, wailing and screaming and doing stuff that not many of the male vocalists uh, at the time were doing, he was a great 
um, inspiration for me. So again, I can remember those very early days of Priest where we used to rehearse at this little, tiny little room about half the size of this stage. We could barely get in it. And it used to be run by this um, local vicar. We called him Holy Joe. His name was Joe, Father Joe. And it cost us um, about five pounds, which is a lot of money in those days, five quid. And we used to give him five quid, and he'd go straight down the pub around the corner and get smashed out of his <laughs> See him staggering back into the church, you know, to the late, late, late night service. But um, he used to run this, this room called Holy Joe's, a very famous place. Slade used to... Wow. Slade used to jam there all the time and a lot of other people. It was, the only, it was really the only, very few rehearsal facilities in those days. Um, so priests would go in there and we didn't really have an idea of what we were doing. It was very much a jam, you know. It was kind of progressive blues rock, you know, and out of those early jams would come the riffs and the ideas. So we'd really, I, I really wish now, if, if, I, if I could have, if I, where's my phone? If I, no, I don't know, I've lost it again. If I were, you know, if, if I'd had a cell phone to record it, and, and we didn't even think about pressing record on a tape machine, you yeah. know. What were, what were we doing, you know? Would have been, it would have been like watching something grow, you know, that was never heard of before. But anyway, that's, that's how that sound developed, and that's how my technique, if you want to call it that, my style, if you want to call it that, that's how it developed. You literally are ma making it up as you go along, which I think is really cool because that means it's very pure, you know? And correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I believe uh, Ian Hill was, your, was the first member of Priest that you met, is that correct? Yes. He was dating my sister, <laughs> Sue. <laughs> she reminds me of this every Christmas. Remember that time you were looking... <laughs> When I was dating in, they were looking for a singer, and I, I suggested you audition to them. Yes, you told me this about 8,000 times. God bless you. But um, that's how it was. I was in a local band called Hiroshima. Great name for a band. And <laughs> before that, no, my best, my best amateur band was called Lord Lucifer. God, now that is a great name. That's for a, a great band. metal name. Isn't it a great name for a band, Lord Lu Not just Lucifer, it's Lord Lucifer. I don't know who came up with that. I wish they trademarked that, you know. But, um, but, and then Abraxas and then Athens Wood, all these, all these kind of bluesy, progressive rock bands. So I was doing the circuits just around the Midlands and the clubs and the pubs, anywhere that would, where you could play. And, um, and so... Uh, people knew knew what I was able to do, and I think that's how I got the um, the audition through through my sister dating in at the time. And I went and uh, met KK and talked about music, and we had a jam at Holy Joe's, and that was that. <laughs> and I, just to go back for just a second, um, you know, you mentioned that they knew what you were able to do. Can you think of a moment? Uh, I mean. Is the name Rob Halford is synonymous with this amazing, insane, impressive vocal range, you know, and you know, decades before American Idol or anywhere where people were testing their metal, so to speak, um, you can sing this like shriek, and, but the, also this range where that's you know, there's the low range, there's the mid range, there's the high range. When did you do you remember when you first discovered like I, I'm capable of doing this? Right, like, no, not really. Again, this. it was just those early jams, you know. I, I just wanted to see how, how, 
high I could go, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I, I mean, and you do that as blues singers, blues, because I love the I love blues music. That's like, again, you've probably read on my bucket list is to, at some point, make a blues album. But to actually to, to actually listen to those great early blues singers, you know, and um, and again try and emulate some of that into the passion and the soul, the screaming vibe out of the out of your person. You want to go high. You want to scream as much as you can. I don't think I really found it until we made Rockerola when we were doing um, Run of the Mill, that, that track, the, the, the ballad, Run of the Mill. There's the very end se section where I'm singing, I can't, I can't go on, I can't go on. And I can remember even now just talking about it. It was, it was all very free form because it was the outro part of the track. And I just kept, you know, going higher and higher and higher. And when I listen to that now, it's, it's pretty much of a... a um, a kind of a, a synchronicity, not synchronicity, what's that word? Serendipity. Serendipity. <laughs> okay, okay, serendipity. Serendip I feel like, I feel like serendipitous I have a right moment, like a touchstone, catalyst, whatever it is. You know, I'm sure that musicians feel that. It, it, it just happens, you know. Um, it's hard to describe. It's as though you're finding out something about yourself. And if you can do it by self-discovery, I think that's, I think that's great. You know, I mean, now I don't think I'm as adventurous enough. That's why Glenn is always pushing me when I'm doing. I always do my vocals, my vocal tracks with Glenn. He will be sitting there, and I'll be doing my bit. And you go, you can do better than that. Oh, God. <laughs> Take twenty twenty-three. <laughs> I think you've got it. I think you can just do one more. Just try that one word there. So. I, even now, I love to be, um, you know, pushed to see. I don't think I'm lazy. I think I just need that extra kind of, you know, kick in the butt to get that thing to happen. And that might seem strange, me saying that, but that's just the way I am, you know. I, I've always tried to be very honest and open about what I am as a musician. And so... Um, you know, self-discovery in the early days is great because it gives you a little bit of a boost of a confidence and it really makes you want to keep trying and trying. But then I think as you get older, I still feel that way, but, and the fire is still there, but you know in the early days the fire's blazing? Now it's one of those fires where you want to take your shoes off and put your feet to, Well, that feels, that fire feels great, you know. Poke it with so, a stick a little bit. So it's more of a, it's more of a comfortable fire these days and oh God, it's so hot in here. Um, but so I, so I, I, um, I enjoy, I still enjoy the, um, I still enjoy the, uh, the, the adventure, the challenge of a new vocal, um, idea and approach and we're, we're making priest is making new music right now and um so and i would never talk about priest music before it's officially time to, to talk about it but there are some fucking incredible things coming from this band some really really serious stuff is about to happen i think i think we're I think everybody's going to be very, very happy with what we're, we're trying to do next. And that, again, is always, what else can you do? After 40-something years, you can still do something different, you know? And, and, and I think that's, 
That's what I love about this band, about Priest, is that we, you know, we haven't kind of let go of the reins. We're still very much hungry and, 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 and searching and, and, and trying to prove what we've got left inside of us as musicians. And so this next batch is going to be a real thrilling moment for everybody, I think. And there's been, there was some talk uh, in the not-too-distant past over the span of the band's career of the end of Priest that I think was probably misconstrued in terms of what the parameters of that even were. But I just want to say on behalf of everyone, thank you for not ending Priest <laughs> and everything you've put out since then. We, um, you know, you never, you never, you never lose sight of the fact of where you are and how you've got to the place that you're at. And I think that's not just in music, but in everything. There's very few, very few of us that can get through life without having some kind of a team or, or a person or a bunch of people helping us move ahead and, and achieve the things that we love. And, and so it is with us in Priest, you know, we've, um, there's a tremendous love that we have for each other as far as, you know, musicians. And um, the fact that, you know, th this thing about, you, you know, you, you, when you say you're going to do a farewell tour, please don't say that because <laughs> we, well, I mean, I'm, I'm saying that because I'm talking from experience. Before KK retired, it was going to be a farewell tour. But then when Richie came along, Richie, the incredible guitar player, Richie, Richie Falcon Falconer came along, um, not only did he give us... Uh, a boost, which is a natural thing. It's like when you change a guy on your football team or your basketball team. The team is the, stay, the same, but you bring in an, another player and the dynamic should shift, you know, the energy should shift. And that's what happened with, with Richie. So the, the, um, the sense of, of, you know, longevity is still within us. I think, I don't think we, we're going, oh, even though the clock is ticking, we're not, we're not even thinking about the end, you know. What else can we do? You know, it's going to be more live shows and, and more records for the future. Hell yeah. So I'd like to go back a little bit to uh, when you were talking about this very natural, organic way of finding yourself, finding your sound, um, knowing, knowing there wasn't a blueprint to follow of we're going to be a heavy metal band and here's what heavy metal bands do. Certainly if I were to start a heavy metal band tonight, well, we sound like Judas Priest, and we, we're going to wear leather. And um, I'd love to hear from you uh, the because really you're responsible for the introduction of what we think about as the look of metal when it comes to leather and spikes and chains and motorcycle boots and Harleys. And uh, talk to me about introducing that into really the mainstream music culture. But it was it was there right from. Again, that's why I always feel blessed as a musician to have lived through a time when music was such an incredible, powerful force, uh, particularly after the, the Second World War, because we went through the 50s, which was a little bit of a nomadic phase. But then when the 60s came along with people like Elvis and uh, Little Richard, uh, and then fast forward to, um, to Hendrix, all these people dressed up was an incredible uh, alleged comeback performance of Elvis when he's just sitting on a stage dressed in black leather. And it's all, it's all live into the mic. It's great, you know. It's absolute godlike to watch that guy make that performance. 68 comeback special, anyone who hasn't seen it. Watch it when you get home. 
even now you can watch it and you think it was done last week. It's just, it transcends time. And that's the, part of that's the timelessness of the outfit, right? Like yeah, well, Jim Morrison. That's the great and, thing you know. about black dressed in black. You're, oh, God, best, color, best color ever. Although, although black supposedly isn't a color, according to scientists. Right? I don't know whether you know that. Just black thing, whatever. But, but um, what I'm saying is that, you know, everything I saw as a kid growing up from musicians, it was that I, I remembered not only what I heard, but what I saw. And so that was the case with Priest. You know, we had this new sound being developed. And you look at those very early pictures of Priest, and you can see we're just kind of trying to find ourselves with the imagery, because we had this loud, aggressive, in-your-face kind of music, but it just wasn't quite meshing in terms of... You look at this, some of the pictures in stained class, and it's, you know... It's, it just it kind of defies logic when you when you when you look at that. But then you move forward a, a record or two, and then you see that leather thing coming in, and, and it just makes absolute sense, you know, that you've got a a very kind of strong type of defining um, statement visually that that suggests well this band has got to be tough and loud and strong. So, and then of course it's been embellished. <laughs> a little bit <laughs> since then, you know. Um, but uh, I think it was a good move. It, it, it was part of, as, as I progressed in my ideas and sitting with people and can we try this, can we try that, it became very, um, very much part of that new metal scene, you know, right from the, from say the mid, late 70s onwards, you know, it suddenly became the thing that was, Every, a lot of other bands were looking at what priests were doing. That's, that's not new with the you and the umlaut. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the new wave of British heavy metal we're talking about. Yes, we were before that. Yeah. Yes, I have to, I, 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 I'm always very um, vocal about that. We were before the new wave of British heavy metal, which was a great moment because I think that really put metal on a global map, you know? It really, particularly here in America, um, those it, bands were influenced by Sabbath and Priest. Yes, and, absolutely. Yeah. You know, and, and again, it's a joy to look back that that two of the founding bands of of the heavy metal scene are still here. You know, we're still yeah. active. We may have changed shape a little bit, but the structure of us, we're still here. You know, we yeah. are we are the inventors of heavy fucking metal. You know. It's funny, it, it reminds me as also a fan of Iron Maiden seeing interviews with, with Bruce Dickinson yes. where, where, where he'll say, hey, you know, we're not, people always say Sabbath, Priest, and Maiden. You know, we're not as old as those two bands. Yeah, I, mean, <laughs> I love Bruce. That's, uh, we've known those guys forever, you know, and, and it was so exciting to see Maiden leading the charge in that new wave of British heavy metal along with Saxon, a bunch of other great bands. Um, but uh, in terms of you know, the way things get labelled and boxed in, in chronological order, they came through from, you know, that, that, that next level. It was, and it was a very exciting time because at that point, um, the exchange of information was a lot faster, mm. you know, before the internet, before cell phones, before fax machines, you know, it was still pretty, um, pretty extraordinary. You mentioned staying class, and I, I, for some reason, when I think about that record, I think about... Uh, <laughs> I, 
I, I think that one of the biggest uh, evangelists for that record has been Carrie King. I remember as a kid reading interviews with Slayer where he would always be talking about that record. Um, but I think for a lot of Priest fans, and there's a lot of landmark records that we can we could be here all night talking about, uh, but I would say British Steel is certainly one of, you know, if, you, if you're trying to narrow it to five or six records to introduce Judas Priest to someone, or heavy metal for that matter. Uh, yeah, I, you know, again, when, when you've had the, 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 the grace and fortune of, of having such a long life in music, that everything tends to kind of not, not blend into each other, but it's, you really have to sit down, you know, and, and somebody tell you, listen to this song, and then you listen, and then you remember, you know? And that's the case with, um, with British Steel, which has become, you know, by its own merit, just the way it was in 1980, 1980. Um, uh, I don't know, I, it, it's just, we made that record in 30 days from start to finish. <laughs> I mean, it was just, we were flying. There was a time in the 80s, as, as the Priest fans here will know, we were banging out a record a year and a world tour. How did we do that? I don't know, when I was in the band, I, I just can't remember how we did it, you know. And records of that quality too, not just yeah, we're cranking out we're records, we're making throwing them together. Too. There was such a, there was such a, it was such an exciting time, the 80s particularly, and because America was embracing metal in, in such an extraordinary way, um, you really had to keep running, you couldn't step back, you couldn't go away for a year, a year even. The label was like, get back out, get back out. Oh, we haven't got a song, just get back out, you know. <laughs> and so we would run off to Ibiza, you know, and I don't, I don't know how, oh God, if I think in my, my drinking and drugging days, but by the grace of God am I, I'm, I'm here, you know, because how did we do this? How did we make those records? We were smashed out of our minds like 18 hours a day, and then we'd go in the studio and like you've got another thing coming. You know, it's just, it's just mind blowing. You know, I mean, now we're, we're, you know, we're like a bunch of old guys, bunch of old guys excluding Richie. Like, well, what do we do next? Put that note after that note. Oh, that's a good idea. Whereas in those days, fucking crank it up, you know. And we 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 used to. We used to rent these these like motorcycles, these Boltaco uh, like speedway motorcycles, and it was like Ibiza in in the eighties. It was like it was hedonistic, you know. I mean, it's still a crazy place now, but my God, you know, you know, the, going up the sides of mountains after drinking a bottle of vodka and dropping some acid, you know, it's just like, how did I, how did I even do that? You know, and Ian going through. Ian got through twelve rental cars in a week <laughs> because he wanted to see how he could go through all the gears without pushing the clutch in. You know, and and the guy from the rental place came up to some. I no lend you no more cars, no more cars. No, we need more cars. No, no more cars. I show you why. I show you why. And he gets an envelope out. And he thought he's bought us some coke, and he opened it up, and all this white powder came out. He got these are the brakes. These are the brakes. <laughs> Ian, uh, uh, not the brakes, the, um, the thing that changes the gear, whatever. Yeah, that was, it was all ground down to fine white powder. And you threw it on the kitchen table. No more cars for you. No more cars. So all of those things happened, and we made these wonderful records at the same time, you know. And so 
in the midst of all that was the sanity of John Lennon's former house, Tittenhurst Park, beautiful, beautiful, stately home. And um, again, we were on the, you know, running. We had to make a, a record pretty quickly. We finished a tour. We, we opened up for ACDC. And it was the last tour that Bond did, Rest His Soul. And um, we finished the ACDC tour. And about a week later, we went into um, uh, this Lennon's old studio and started to make British Steel. And again, it's just... I don't know what it's kismet, fate, destiny, whatever, but all Serendipity. Serendipity. <laughs> all of our songs, da 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 that's great. We're gonna use that, you know. And da 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 that's great, we're gonna use that. It was very spontaneous, and again I think some of the purest music comes from in being instant and again organic, which is one of Richie Falcon's Richie Richie Falcon's favourite word is organic. If you see him, just like, have you had anything organic today, Richie? Um, but it, yes, in, in, in the true spirit of these wonderful things that happen to you as a musician, and you, you really can't explain why, you know, Glenn put his fingers where he did on the guitar, you know, or where did our, these lyrics come from. It's just this beautiful, free-flowing type of musical experience. And I think probably out of that, if you look through the great history of rock and roll, all kinds of records kind of pop up because of those moments. It's just a beautiful, pure experience musically, and I think that was the case with, with British Steel. We had the fire burning around us at the time in, in the UK with Margaret Thatcher and the, the coal miners were on strike and the garbage men were on strike, the steel workers were on strike, we had the punk new wave movement going on. It was a real revolution going on in the UK at that time, um, both in you know, people on the street, in, in government and in culture. A little bit like what happened in America in the 60s around the Nixon Vietnam years, you know, this is the great, this is the great thing about music. A lot of great music comes out of turbulence, you know, and I think that was probably Priest's album, uh, British Steel, which is a, just a great statement because it means so much, um, came to be at that time, and um, it's a good record. And it, it clocks in really quickly as well. You know, it's about 38 minutes in change, oh, maybe. Like, you know, it's Rain bang, and Blood. Bang, bang. And like, well, so many great metal records are just, you know. But, um, yeah, so... I long for records like that now because I know we're in a different world and people tend to listen to music one track at a time. But it is, it is very important if, if you do have the time to commit to listening to what your favourite band has made from the first track to the last track. Because and how it is, it's sequenced. Yes, yeah. the sequencing. It's telling you a story of, the, of, that, of your favourite band at that particular time in their life and your life. So right from the from the get-go of that first track on British Steel to the last track, is it Steeler? Um, it's just a wonderful... When we played that live, when we played the... We only played the British Steel uh, album live in America, I believe. It was just great to play that live. It just flew by, and at the end, the end was just like going to church, you know? It was just, <laughs> ooh, you know? It was yes. great. <laughs> um, yeah, we... For me, growing up in America, uh, you know, I discovered heavy metal and Judas Priest in the 80s. Um, I was, you know, a kid from a working class background, broken home, the whole deal in Indiana, 
which was, you know, uh, certainly not the most progressive place to grow up. And, you know, for me, I remember seeing, uh, everyone j makes the joke about how MTV doesn't play music videos, but I did see Judas Priest for the first time on MTV. And, uh, yeah, and, and seeing you <laughs> in the whole regalia and just, I mean, it, it, you know, it, it, it was, people, people use uh, terms like mind-blowing and things like that. I think they overuse it. But in that case, my mind was blown as a kid seeing, uh, seeing Judas Priest. Well, you know, a big shout out to what was MTV because we, we were there right from the very beginning of the video age. And um, again, up until that moment, it was uh, magazines. It really was magazines. It was radio. God bless rock and roll radio. I love radio. I always have and always will in this country. But to suddenly be able to, to visually have that band in your, in your bedroom or the living room or whatever, your favorite band over and over again, you know. Not only, not only were you able to listen to the track, but you could actually see the track and whomever it might be. And, and MTV were tremendously responsible for spreading that, um, that experience. I can remember going to New York City and, and doing some of the very first broadcasts for MTV. I was a, I was a VJ for a bit. Did you know that, Ryan? <laughs> I did was not a VJ. know that. <laughs> That's like a DJ, but you're a VJ, video. Video jockey. DJ, VJ. Um, and it was crazy. You, do, do, it, you did, but you did the I Want My MTV, those promos, right? Yeah, I did, I did yeah. a bunch of that stuff. It was great, you know, yeah. Martha Queen and all the early yeah. people. Um, Alan Hunter. And yeah, Mark, and there was Mark a little Goodman. tiny building in, in New York. And of course, you could, MTV was everywhere except for New York City because they couldn't get, the, <laughs> they couldn't get the, the cable licensing to work. So to be with those guys at the, at the kickoff was, was tremendously exciting, and it was a revolution, you know. Um, that's so, how a kid in Indiana was going to see and hear Well, Judas that's what Priest. it was, you see. Yeah. It, it took you, you didn't, I'm going to try and explain this. You, you know, you could see your favorite band in your town, wherever you were in America, um, and that was your kind of doorway, your window, to hopefully seeing them perform live, you know, coming to to your town and so well we had, for priest it was a blast i can't remember the very first video we made but like, was that the very first one was it was it living after midnight yeah i remember riding We're crowdsourcing this factory right i remember I, I wouldn't i'd be lost without you guys um i remember riding a motorcycle out for living after midnight outside of sheffield sheffield city hall sheffield town hall um, for living after midnight, that was like the entrance to the to the show, and uh, it was middle of winter. It was freezing fucking cold, but everybody stood outside because they wanted to be in a video, you know, all the fans. <laughs> and then you, you know, the the story is you drive along, and then you get on the stage and you join the band. So a, a lot of it, again, from the video storyboard point of view, was very new until you got people like Julian Temple. Julian right. Temple right. was a great, innovative video guy. Yeah. And we made a bunch of videos with him, the famous ones being um, You've Got Nothing, nothing oh. Coming, uh, which we made um, uh, somewhere outside of London. But, but so the, the video experience was an extension of yourself as a band because normally you'd be playing music, but suddenly you were an actor, you know. <laughs> and, um, I mean, I remember the Turbo Lover video was like, Mad yeah, Max. With, that was great. It was like early, with, um, early tool with like Wayne, the, Wayne Eichen and his sidekick. Oh God, two incredible, incredible guys that really grabbed the reins of that 
experience and made them very much into very big cinematic yeah. things. Yeah, we we made um, we made Turbo part of Turbo over at the old Griffith Park Zoo. We also yeah. did Locked Inside Your Love uh, in there in the bear pits, the old bear pits. I could talk to you forever, and we're we're going to take some audience questions here. There's a few other things I want to get to first, though. Um, one of them is, uh, you know, in talking about the 80s and being a kid from Indiana, um, and I know that your experience with this probably was different in the UK when you got to America. Um, I don't know how many of you in the audience remember the PMRC. <laughs> but I, I, you know, I, I had an experience as a kid where, I, you know, my, my dad and stepmom had, it, it basically left me to my own devices as far as music that I was discovering and things like that. And I'm, you know, uh, seventh, eighth grade, full-on thrash metal kid with the skateboard and metal records and posters on the walls and everywhere. And this thing had happened where my stepmom was Christmas shopping and she was at the cassette store in the local mall and she asked whoever this guy was working behind the counter, um, you know, I'm here shopping for my stepson for Christmas. And the guy says, so what kind of music does he like? And she said, ah, he, he wears T-shirts that say, you know, Slayer and, and Metallica and Judas Priest. And, and this guy just freaks out. This is in the south side of Indianapolis in 1988 or something. And, you know, the guy's like, oh, your son's worshiping the devil. He's on drugs. He's probably suicidal. And uh, I came home from school that day, and my, my dad and stepmom, who were never in my bedroom, were both literally in my bedroom, flipping through my records, pulling out lyric sheets, look, you know, studying the posters on the wall, looking at everything. And, uh, and I thought, partly because of what the metal community had prepared me for with the PMRC and all, you know, I was like, well, this is, this is where they cut my hair and send me off to some, like, you know, reprogramming, because uh, it was like that then. Um, I would love to know, as uh, Rob Halford of Judas Priest, who lived through that, and even you know, went in a courtroom over it. Uh, what was that like, and, and uh, how did that feel? And uh, thank God we we seem to have gotten out of that dark time in our culture. Yeah, I mean, the first thing I always think about were the two beautiful guys that lost their lives. You know, I don't think of anything about that. I just think about this tragic loss of two beautiful guys who were hardcore priest fans. They loved Judas Priest, you know. Their story got terribly twisted and manipulated. But the, this was a simple case, which we've seen so many times, where... You know, a couple of young guys that come from a family that, that, you know, is not the perfect family. I'm not going to go into that. But, you know, you, you make a few choices and you take those choices to an extreme and, and these terrible things happen. Um, so that's the heart of it, not only for me, but I think for the rest of us, that it's, it's so sad to think about the loss of those two beautiful guys. Having said that... Um, you know, stepping off the tour bus and being told before we step off in Dallas, I think it was, that the sheriff is going to present you with a subpoena, what affidavit, subpoena, to appear in court. We didn't know what was going on at this point. Our tour manager said, just, just take, he's going to go, you've been served, you just take it from him, don't say anything. So we took, and that's how it was left. We didn't really talk much about it because we didn't know what was going on. And then, of course, we're, we actually had to leave our home country and come to Reno, Nevada, Reno, Nevada to literally fight for our lives. We, it was that extreme. It was only when we met with our attorneys 
that they and they were explaining all of the different you know ways that this is being pursued that we thought this is really very very serious not only for the, the loss of those two great guys but just the you know the 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 perimeter of it about subliminal messages and First Amendment rights and and all of these all of these attacking points that really had nothing to do with anything other than these people hating the music that we that we made. They didn't like what we did. They thought we, we genuinely were a threat, you know? A bit like what Elvis went through and what little Richard went through. And we couldn't understand that because we we're guys from the UK and we've we've never had we were talking about this, Ryan. We, we've never had that experience in the UK. British people don't talk about music that way. They, they don't accuse music of doing things like that. It just doesn't make sense to the British public, you know? And I, I don't, please don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm, not, um, I'm not having a go at, at the way that, you know, certain parts of, of this country would, were involved in that, because I think a lot of it, again, a bit like what's going on now, a certain portion of society was being whipped up into this hysterical frenzy about this music being so terrible and destructive and satanistic and it's no good for you and it was all very negative, negative, and fear, fear, fear. And a lot of people were going, yeah, you're absolutely right, you know, because of the, the tragedy that was attached to it. Um, we got to the heart of the matter pretty quickly and once we, we did some interviews with CNN and we were able to tell our side of the story and because I think that there was this preconception that these guys are really, you know, yeah man, fuck you, you know, because we were able to really articulate our point of view and, you know, have a level, a grain of intelligence to really exchange these discussions and, and, and explain our point of view and what do you feel about that? Tell us how you feel, you know, and they would say this and then we'd say, well, no, this is what really is meant here. Everybody was going, oh, we got this completely wrong, you know, these are just a bunch of guys in the band having a good time, you know, and so are their fans. So then it became all of this business about this subliminal messaging, which if the judge had found for the prosecution, the aftermath of that could have been quite, um, quite bleak. Um, one of our one of our defence uh, people suggested that because of the so-called subliminal aspect of of what this this whole case was uh, hinging on, this do it thing, which was never there in the first place, it was just a, the way I was singing, and a strange weird effect, was that you know before any piece of music would was going to be played on the radio, the station had to make a statement saying, we disassociate ourselves from any possible subliminal music in this song. And then they put on a track by Priest. You know, and that wouldn't only be for Priest, that would be everybody, and not being hysterical here, this is what we were told, that this would, if, if the judge had found for the prosecution, then it would have gone through all these different levels of the court system. And it was, it was just a mishmash, because it wasn't really First Amendment rights. It was a very unusual type of thing. It goes back to the, in the movies in the 50s, they'd flash some popcorn in it. In in they actually used to do that, but you could see it. God, oh, I just saw some popcorn, I need some popcorn. <laughs> well, you can't do that. You know, you can't do that with music. You know, how can something be subliminal if you can hear it? So it was a very, very difficult and very, very interesting case from a, um, 
from a legal point of view, from a technical or audio point of view. But, um, you know, that wrapped up with what Tipper Gore was doing and, and the PMRC and... And they were putting records, records by Prince and Bruce Springsteen. Yeah, it wasn't just just Prince. Yeah, it was, yeah. Sheena East and everybody. I mean, I'm all for um, explaining the, or uh, preempting the content of something. I think that's very, that, that's common sense, you know, especially if, but you know, what are kids now? I don't know what a kid is, you know. I mean, what is a, how is an eight year old thinking now? How is a 10 year old thinking now? You know, I think the thinking was in those days. You know, if there's like, if there are words on there that I don't want my family, my kids or whatever to be exposed to, I want to be able to see that, that, is, that there's some content like that and I can say I don't want this for my children. Because that, that really was the heart of the matter. And that's no different to going to the movies. It's sure. an R-rated movie, a PG-rated, a G-rated. We have that in the, in the UK worldwide. So it's a very big kind of sociological, almost anthropological discussion from an artistic censorship point of view but um, emotionally it was it was very difficult but you know we we got through it and again with not only from the incredible um, uh, defense team that we had but the fans were just unbelievable the fans were with us every day at that courthouse in Reno you know holding up uh, posters and cheering us on and that kind of thing. We really had tremendous support from our fans and we'll never forget that. And I always remember at the end of the trial, um, the fans gave me this beautiful, huge uh, Stars and Stripes, Stars and Stripes flags, flag, mm -hmm. with messages written on it, which I've still got. I've got it at my house in Phoenix. And I, I occasionally I look at that because it's just a great, a great memory that... Um, that has survived uh, that experience and it really shows you the true strength and power and love and community of the metal community that we have, that we're always looking after each other, we always have each other's back, we always support each other no matter what we go through. Getting a bit choked up listening to that. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. Collect myself from that. Um, yeah, and I, you know, I was always, as a kid even, and through adulthood, I've always believed, and I've always said, uh, you know, anyone who thinks that this type of music, heavy metal or punk or hardcore or anything like that, that it's driving anyone to suicide or violence or... Uh, I've always said uh, that music was a huge part of keeping me from those things. You know, it's yes, thanks it is. to heavy it is. metal. It is. I mean, especially some of the darker themes of heavy metal. And again, some of it I'm not personally attracted to, but I'd be the last person to say, you know, stop playing that, making that kind of music. That, that's ridiculous. You have to allow everybody the right to express themselves no matter how it, how it is. You know, that's the way humanity should be. You know, that's how, that's how the world became civilized, you know. And it's, in, it's important to have discourse, it's important to bump, in, bump up against each other because that's how you grow, that's how you better yourself. You know, you become a more open-minded, the wisdom starts to come in. You know, you have to be able to 
look at something or listen to something and if, and if, and if it's not quite working for you, either put it to one side um, or find out what it is, you know, why, what's, why is that making me feel the way I feel, you know? And, um, and really you shouldn't do that about music. You either like it or you don't. If you don't like it, switch it off and just shut your mouth up, you know, that's just, <laughs> simple, yeah. just yeah. a simple philosophy. Heavy, heavy metal, you know, taught me about H.P. Uh, Lovecraft and Edgar Allan Poe and uh, the Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner and Nostradamus. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I mean, I became way more interested and fascinated in so much literature and art and, you know, William Blake uh, through metal than I ever did through the school system in Indiana in the 1980s and 90s. So, I, guys, uh, we have two mics here. We can start lining up for questions. Um, man, I want to talk about Painkiller. I want to talk about Fight. I want to talk about Two. Uh, I wish we had several more hours, but we don't. I, I will come back. This has been great. <laughs> and I'll, I'll definitely come back yes. and we can, we can talk some more. Uh, so what we'll do here, um, because we don't have all the time in the world and we have a lot of awesome fans here, if you could keep it to one question, uh, the question cannot be, can I have a hug and, or can I take a picture, only because that yeah, takes all night. Yeah, watch me, because as you know, I just go on and on and on and on, <laughs> so I'm going to try and be as quick as, as I can. Yeah, we'll start over here, and if you could just uh, tell us your name and your question for Rob, uh, and obviously, you know, try to keep it to Rob and his career, of course. Uh, hey, Rob, uh, Heavy Metal Greg here, I have a YouTube channel. Uh, Electric Eye came out, and that was some very forward lyrics. Uh, actually, if you still read through the lyric sheet of Electric Eye, you, and you realize that there's a camera on every corner. Yes. And, before, uh, yeah, before, even before the internet and stuff. Yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, so, I mean, the inspiration of that obviously has much more impact probably now than when it was originally written. Uh, or, um, and uh, I just wanted to point that out. <laughs> uh, thank you. I, I, yeah. I'm, always, I'm just always looking for ideas, you know. Um, that was a great transition out of certain kinds of music. Um, I've always loved that, that side of metal that can have its serious tone and, and can, look, can look at why are, you, why are you breaking the law, you know? Well, there's a reason, you know? And electric eye, what does that mean? Well, we know exactly what it means now, but in, at, that, at that particular time, maybe some people were, were still trying to figure it out. But, that was before we're at now, you know, and every, literally every aspect of our life is, is, um, is being recorded and, and, and looked into. And whether that's a good thing or whether that's a bad thing is a whole other debate. These questions are the best questions we've ever had at this thing. Yes. Oh, hey, uh, hey, Rob, I'm Jonathan. Hello, Jonathan. Um, and I have a quick question, just curious, um, what bands have you been listening to recently? Ooh. You're uh, always recently. up to date. You are always up to date. Um, do you know, I've been hibernating a little bit because um, I'm working on the, on the lyrics for the next Priest album right now. There's a lot of lyrics. And when I do that, I generally tend to close things off, you know? But, um, God, August Burns Red. Wow. Uh, Whitechapel. Wow. <laughs> Um, I'm laughing because uh, these, these guys are going to pee their pants hearing that. I just love that, that kind of intense attack. That yeah. I was listening to, you know, those kinds of bands. Yeah. Amen. Thank you. Hello. 
Hello. Hi, Rob. I'm Dave. Hello, Dave. Before I ask my question, I just wanted to say incredibly quickly, I have an autistic eight-year-old who doesn't speak yet, and one of the only times he actually makes some kind of noise, which sounds like he is going to really speak, is when he's listening to priest music. That's wonderful. That's great. You see, that's the, uh, that, that's the power with, you know, I, I, I read the other day about the incredible thing that this pokey mango thing craze is doing, that a lot of autistic children are reacting to that. So, you know, you've got Pokemon and Priest doing wonderful <laughs> things for people and that's great. I mean, that, that really, that really what you just said there says so much about the incredible power that music has. It does. Not just metal, but music in general. It's this beautiful human, human resource that is around the world because music makes the world go around. And, um, and so that's great, and I, and I really hope that, um, you know, if he keeps listening to Priest, that um, extra special things happen. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, quick question. Um, you've had a long career, over 40 years, such great albums like Sad Wings of Destiny, Sin After Sin, you know, straight on through to now. You're making new records even now as we speak, probably. So many things have probably changed over the years to, with your approach, maybe, like, psychology-wise, philosophically, so many things have probably changed over the years. What would you say is the one thing that has remained the most consistent, maybe something that would pop in your mind, like you might have thought about it while you were tracking the vocals to an album in the 70s, and it might still pop in your head now. Is there something that's remained consistent to your approach, uh, whether it be technique or philosophically? throughout the ages, something you would have thought of 40 years ago, and it still might pop in your head right now. Well, I think, I think it's, like we were talking about earlier, the, this sense of adventure that, that I have as a singer. I'm always thinking while I'm doing, what, doing line tracks, particularly when I'm recording, it's very, difficult to, it's very difficult to sing without thinking. You should try it, because my brain won't switch off, you know, I'm a terrible insomniac. And, you know, when I'm singing, there's all uh, things are always intruding in, into my mind, and that's always, and that's <laughs> this might sound weird, but that has always been with me as a singer. I, it's uh, I wish it was a bit more <laughs> uplifting, but it's it's just there. It's always there, and I, I think maybe that's just this internal desire, again, of, of just searching. You know, and I think that once the search is over, things tend to be different, and I. I just, I'm glad that that probably is one of the most consistent factors for me as a singer is that I feel I'm on this fantastic adventure as a singer and I'm always kind of looking to do something better. Thank you. Awesome. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Thank you, Rob. Yes, sir. Hey, Rob. Hello. Mm. Excuse me. I'm Paul from Huntington Beach. Hello, Paul. Been an instant fan since about 1978, seen you in Judas Priest 30 times. Thank you. Wow, thank off. you very thank much. You. And you. Uh, at this point in your career, vocally, which would be the one song that you would pull out of the old archives and want to bring back on stage uh, if you go on tour, say, next year, and which is the one you absolutely would not want to sing live again? Um. So are you saying a song that I've not sung or a song that I've sung? Yes, bringing it back out of the Judas Priest. Uh, that I've never sung. Oh, God. Oh, I tell you what I would like to do. 
Dying to Meet You from Rockerola. Yeah. I love that song. That's a really heavy song. You know, I woke up this morning, something, 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 you know. I like to hear Richie on And then the da 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 I'd love to hear those guitars now in 2016. I would love to hear Richie on it. Like, that's yeah, the yeah, you totally. just said, right? Yeah. That, that would really be neat to hear. And which is the one you would never want to revise again? Why don't you just go that? There, lay it to rest. Uh, yeah, you know, there, re there, really isn't, there really isn't one, in all honesty. I mean, we've always said in Priest <clears throat> that we would never release anything to our fans and to the public if we didn't believe in 100%. And obviously some of them do push a little bit more forward than, than the others. Just That's just the way it works. But in all honesty, everyone's a great one for me. Should I have asked, which one would you dread singing again? Well, I always say painkiller, but I always rise to the bar. I always get there. Oh, God. You want to try singing... You want to try singing Painkiller on the 100? How many shows did you be doing the last tour? Oh, you killed it last tour. 100 how many? 130. When you're singing Painkiller for the 130th yeah. time, <laughs> you know, you're looking at the set list. I mean, my man cave changing into my next Liberace outfit. And I'm going, oh, God, painkiller's coming, painkiller's coming. I've got to do painkiller. Oh, there's no way I can do painkiller. Oh, God help me, I can't do painkiller. Like, Faster than a bullet. I'm there, you know. It's yeah. great. And let me just say, I watched you... <clears throat> I watched you sound check that with Baby Metal, and he was just as fucking awesome at sound check as the show. Recent tours, just... you've been killing it. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. Over here. Hi, Rob. Hello. My name is uh, Mauricio. Hello, Mauricio. Um, back in uh, 92, 93, Black Sabbath reunited with Ronnie James Dio to, to <laughs> re record uh, Dehumanizer. Um, but one of the reasons that they broke up was, I guess, Sharon wanted Black Sabbath to open up for Ozzy. And then I saw an interview with Dio where he was really, you know, pissed off about it. And this was an aftermath. And I believe they, they got you to, to be to front Black Sabbath. I was wondering if you got any uh, fallout. Did, did you get any, you know, bad relationship with Dio? Or did any, how was your experience being on Black Sabbath? God bless Ronnie James Dio. Yeah. <laughs> you know, for, for a lot of the things that you read in the press, I remember those, those two shows vividly and there was so much love going on backstage between everybody. It was just a very peculiar thing. The blessing for me, of course, was that I got to sing with my, you know, it's, it's always been priest first for me, then it's been Sabbath. So I've, I've had the opportunity to do that a, a few times, to sing with Sabbath and I'm singing, I'm like, oh, fucking hell, is Tony Iommi's over there. <laughs> and I'm, I'm doing yeah. like Black Sabbath and like, Satan's, and you guys do Satan laughing spreads his wings and there's geezer yeah. bottle. Yeah. Oh my God. So, um, I don't know. Um, it's just one of these peculiar things that happens in, in rock and roll where stories get, you know, amplified in, in a different way. But I, I know that Ronnie and, and Ozzy um, did get along, you know. Maybe they had a few bumps, but that's just the way it is in, in rock and roll. But... Um, Two of the greatest metal singers ever. And, and I always inc include Ozzy. Ozzy. Ozzy gets overlooked. He's got a fucking amazing voice. Yeah. Ozzy's voice is sensational. You know, because, you know, it's just the way we've been led. Like Ozzy Osbourne, oh, he bites the heads off bats. Well, no, he's also one of the greatest heavy metal singers of all time. You know, so uh, if you listen to 
And again, you've got to go old school, to, with me to some extent, when you listen to Ozzy's early stuff, the early Sabbath albums, it's, it's absolutely remarkable, you know. And so, um, anyway, there you go, thanks. Thank you. Yeah. I laughed when you brought that up because I was telling Rob before we came out that I have a, uh, his manager's here, I shouldn't say bootleg, but I have a bootleg of him singing for Black Sabbath at one of those shows and it's YouTube. magical. <laughs> All right. DJ Joe Rocks of our Worldwide Rocky Metal here. Uh, just a two-part question here. Um, where did you come up with the name Judas Priest, mm. and why did you use it? Um, well, the band's name was already there when I, when I joined the band, and there's always this kind of, um, again, urban myth thing about it coming from a Bob Dylan song, about the song of the ballad about Frankie Lee and Judas Priest. I really can't answer the question in all honesty, but I'm just very happy that I sing for a band called Judas Fucking Priest. It's Judas Fucking Priest, by the way. And, and you did rent a rehearsal room from a priest of some type. Yeah, a drunken so, priest. Yeah, there's some kind of serendipity thing. You write a song called Fucking Serendipity. Oh, God. It sounds like a Disney thing. I love Disney, by the way. Yes, I love Disney. Well, it's, you know, it's escapism, it's the purest thing. There's an incredible PBS documentary about the life of Walt Disney. That man was just unbelievable. You know, it's, if you want an example of the human spirit in terms of self-belief and determination, um, it's worth, you know, a couple of hours of your life to watch that PBS thing. It's just sensational. Have what you, you, put, have you what been you to Club from, 33? Pardon? Have you been to Club 33? What is, oh, oh no, I haven't. Yeah, there's a bit about that in, in, the, um, in, in the movie, yeah. We'll talk about that afterwards. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's interesting, that's, that side of it. But uh, I, I go to Disneyland about once every three or four years, and I'm just like a big kid, you know. I just can't wait to get on the rides I've been on before and it's like the first time ever and uh so yeah it, it, i love that disney-esque thing oh yeah sir uh how you doing rob my name's tony uh, Tom. it's my absolute dream to be here right now in such an intimate setting you know with uh, all these lovely people here and it takes me right back to my sixth grade childhood i have my sin after sin tape and i was just wondering if uh you have any memories recording of this album or going on tour in this album and uh, I think it's the most organic like as your voice was you know what I mean like your thank you um, here's the deal with that record uh, we there's been a few drummers in Judas Priest a bit like Spinal Tap we didn't have a drummer for Sin After Sin and Simon Phillips did the drums on Sin After Sin and he just turned 16 and uh, Roger Glover uh, from Purple, because Roger produced the album, suggested because we were we, we you know we were frantic. We we wanted a guy that had double kick drum ability and was was quite flamboyant as a drummer. And um, so I remember vividly making that record in in London. And um, two think two other memories. Uh, one of my favourite books is Roger's Thesaurus, which sounds very posh, but it's a it's a great book for. For, uh, for, for lyricists, you know. And I was always reading this book every day. And it wasn't until the, the, the end of the session, um, uh, Roger Glover came up to me and he goes, what is that book? And I go, it's the Rajas Thesaurus. He goes, oh, I thought you were reading the Bible every day. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a bad idea. But um, 
But that book is 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 a great a great. I still use that now, even though you can do it all on on the iPhone. I love to pick up a real book, you know, and turn the pages and read read the ink. So there's that. And the other thing was, there was a there was a world boxing match, go, uh, like a super heavyweight fight going on. And I was in the studio and Glenn goes, it's on the television, Rob. And I shot out of my chair and ran through into the TV room and smashed the top of my head open. And it was like a Slayer thing. I was just covered in blood in seconds because your head's full of veins. And they had to rush me to hospital and put like six stitches, but I've still got the scar there. So those are the two or three things I distinctly remember about Synopticine. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Hey, uh, hey, Rob Hopper. I'm a big fan. And, Hello. Uh, <laughs> I wanted to know uh, what was the inspiration behind the lyrics for Dreamer Deceiver. Thank you. Yeah, it, it very. It, a lot of it was Hendrix. See, the purple hazy, the purple hazy clouds are about uh, Hendrix. Purple haze, and. Um, I was, I, I was reading something um, on a, like a scientific report about uh, the universe and about this, this common um, theory that is that even though sound isn't audible in space, that it's there. Uh, that there's this, this kind of wave sound or just a particular sound that's always there. Uh, and that's and that kind of led into solar winds. Solar winds are blowing, you know, from the from the sun. So it's just another aspect, like we were talking earlier on, about where you get ideas for lyrics. You know, it's just an unusual um, thing that you read and you go, that might be a cool lyric to put together. So the willow tree and all that kind of stuff. It's just hopefully puts pictures in your mind. You know, yeah. it does, and it was cool to put together. <laughs> have no doubt. Thank you. Yes, sir. Hey, Rob. Hello. Um, I just want to say, uh, is like, you know, you've been playing for like a long time. And uh, is there a certain ritual you have that you do before a show? It- no, I don't. No? And, uh, you know, I always, in the early days, I say, yeah, I get the, uh, get the goat soup, the black, you know, the, put some... Uh, Put some UV lights on and some joysticks and do some <laughs> satanic incantations. You do that. You do that. Yeah, you got to get in the mood. You know, the, the evil, heavy metal, bloodthirsty, satanic metal before I go. And now I just have a cup of tea and. and, and like, I can attest he had a star before he came up tonight. And then I just go out and do it. Thank but you. that's only after years of experience. Don't try that at home. Just... I'm, I'm, I'm only looking at my phone because I'm getting frantic text messages that we're going to have to hurry you along if we're going to get through these questions uh, from the powers that be. Okay. Hey, Rob. I'm Trina. Hi, Trina. I hope I'm not putting you on the spot with this, but I was curious if you were for some reason banished to a desert island and you could only take one album with you, what would it be? Well, <laughs> I'm sorry. No, it's all. But okay. I had to ask. I mean, you know, you, my mind goes everywhere from. I, is it one of his or is it any? It would have to no, be. No, any album oh, any that he'd want to listen to for the rest of his life. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I say this with, with my hand on my heart, and it would have to be Sad Wings of Destiny because, you know. 
that's that's what made us who we are and i don't just mean me i think everybody like a lot of us in this room it's a very important record thank you might be mine too thank you guys hey rob uh, i'm bailey and uh, i saw you in november of 2014 and before that concert i didn't know who steel panther was so how did touring with them come about uh, Russ Parrish, Satchel, uh, Fight, Fight, War of Words, Small Deadly Space. There was that, and a little, a, a part of me thought this would just be really, you know. The guitarist in Steel Panther was in Fight, Rob's band. It would be just real, a real fun thing to do. I mean, it's very difficult to find a special guest with Priest, because you guys are so fucking hardcore, you know? <laughs> Um, and we love you for that, but we were just we just tried to do something different. And they did a hell of a job, and it was why not? You know, we all go out to have a great night of metal, and why not kind of mix it up? And I think they did a great job. They're a great bunch of guys, really really cool guys, and really talented um, talented players as well. And I and I enjoyed watching you guys' reaction because I'd be behind behind the scenes. <laughs> go, oh God, they're going to do that blowjob song in a minute. I can't wait to see. <laughs> people do fuck you you know and he and he's actually an mi alumni yes Mr. he Shredder is incredible guitar awesome. player yeah. incredible and that, their original drummer from that band is in corn now so yeah hey rob my name is tristan um so you're saying in priest early days uh that you would record an album in about 30 days uh nowadays how do you find that you record songs just like one take and like you're like hey this is a cool idea and you all just come up with this song or is it more of you uh, resort to your library, your catch of ideas, and then take from there and kind of build off of that? It, it, still, it still comes down to the really rudimentary stuff. You know, it's all about riffs. It really is about riffs and, and, and uh, just the way the notes are arranged. And the, I'm, I always emphasize the melodic side of what we do in Priest. There's always melody. Even in the fiercest stuff, there's some kind of melody that you can kind of attach yourself to. So it, in all the years that we've been together, I don't think that's changed one bit. I've got most of the Priest album on that phone, the new Priest album. And uh, well, Didn't you say you lost that phone a few minutes ago? <laughs> <laughs> oh, hey, sorry, it's got a special code on it. Um, but it, it, it's very rudimentary, and it is all about the, the simplicity of the riffs. And that would be a great challenge. Could you make another album in 30 days, you know? That would be a throwdown, wouldn't it? And, and I dare say that, you know, if, com if push came to shove, we, we'd have a damn good go, you know? And um, it, it's, it's, it's kind of diff it's different in today's world that I wouldn't say that we enjoy the luxury of waiting. It's just the way that things go on in life, you know? Um, we're still very disciplined when we go in the studio. I mean, we, we have set hours, we take the weekends off, we have set hours, we get there, we do the work for the day and then we leave, you know? And, and that's, just, that's, that's part of, I think it's important as a musician to have that sense of responsibility, not only to, you, to yourself as a musician, but to your bandmates, because we're all in this together. You know, everybody's as important as everybody else. Everybody has something valuable to share and ideas are popping in the room right from the moment that the sounds start happening. So who knows, you know. But this one that we're working on now, it's, it's coming together pretty quickly, but it'll be a long way off until the final crescendo, just because we're so fanatical. When you've left this incredible treasure trail, 
behind you. We're always, not always looking backwards, but we know we have a, a sense of trying to, you know, get to that next place, whatever that place might be. So it, it, is, it is increasingly challenging, you know. We don't just bang a song together. It's very, very deliberately kind of thought out without, without killing the soul and spirit. When you get, a, when you get spontaneous, that's a great feeling. If you, if you can capture that spontaneity, that can be within the song, but what goes around that song can take a while to, to accomplish at this point, hundreds of songs later. But it, it works, you know, and um, it's a joy making this, this Priest record right now. We're just happy that there's another Priest record being made right now. I can tell you. Yeah. I'm, uh, <clears throat> I'm being told that we only have time for two more questions. I'm very sorry. Don't shoot the messenger. All right, I'll be quick. Um, I just want to say, Rob, I've been a fan of yours since late 70s when I was a kid, early 80s, growing up with you. Listen, in every kitchen I've ever worked in, I'm a chef now. Everybody where, where in my kitchen. Where are you kitchens, a chef at? I, you... I, Little Jewel of New Orleans, uh, downtown Los Angeles. I grew up in the French Quarter. Uh, always love, listen to love, all of your yeah, records. Thank you. Um, loudly yes. in those kitchens. Yes. Everyone else has had to endure it, like it or not. I told myself if I ever met you or could talk to you, I'd ask you this question. Um, obviously, the influences in your music from blues and otherwise um, are evident. Uh, the earlier ones, psychedelic music and such. Are there any genres of music that you listen to uh, that we wouldn't associate with you? Uh, any, any styles, anything that would surprise us? Rob Halford listens to this that you, most metal fans would not know. I think I've probably talked about this before, but I mean, I, again, I think a lot of musicians will tell you that uh, outside of their own music, it's very important if, if you have the ability to be very open to listen to all kinds of stuff. So, you know, on my phone, I've got, I've got a lot of classical stuff. Uh, Tchaikovsky, Beethoven, Sibelius, Mozart, all, all of that type of beautiful uh, classical music. And then uh, I've got Tammy Wynette. All right. <laughs> Stand by your You know, and then I've got some Slayer, and then I've got some uh, Whitesnake, and, and then I've got some Pavarotti, you know. Yeah. And then I've got some Vivaldi, and, and I'm all over the place, you know, and, and, and that's, just, that's just the joy of being a musician. If you're able to soak up all of these different experiences, you can let them kind of filter through into your own work. Well, thank you for thank everything. You. I'm afraid this is the last question, and I'm so sorry. sorry. I, I'm an old man, and I've got, my brain is starting to go. And I haven't had him to I, eat. I can point out the people for you guys to yell at. I'm though, dying for a drink and you know, want some food. <laughs> and somebody to tuck me into bed and tell me a bedtime story. That kind of thing. I know you'd say yes, you do. Thank you, Tony. Big Tony. Last one. Hi, Rob. <laughs> I'm Sandy. Um, it's such an honor to just talk to you right now. I just want to say thank you for everything, all the music that you've put out. Just put me through, you know, just... Through any situation, I just want to thank you for that, um, for all you. the strength for that. From thank that, you. Um, I know you have uh, Judas Priest going on right now, and um, I just want to ask, like, in future, are you gonna go back to Halford? Anything for, like from that Resurrection album? Anything from that? I was yeah. wondering the same thing. I, I'd love to. You know, again, it's all about the, the timing of everything. Um, I was listening to Resurrection the other day on a on a flight from um, Sioux Falls, South Dakota. 
I love Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Have you been? I haven't. You should go. But I'm going to. It's so. great. It's great. Yeah. And um, literally, we'll be there soon. So I was listening to Resurrection and that, that you know the title cut and Drive and um, and all the other tracks that escape me now. But it's some some great songs on there. And I, I, did, I had a really good time making that record. You know, both that and, and Crucible. It, and again, it's just Roy-Z. finding the opportunity. Yeah, finding the opportunity. I saw um, Metal Mike recently. He's doing great. I saw, a ch- you know, uh, Mark Chossie, who now works for Monster Energy Dings. Mark was in the um, fight band for um, for a spell. Uh, was it two? Mark, was that two? Mark, Mark Chossie. Oh, okay. oh, I can't remember. So many. But... Um, if, if I get the chance, I, w- I would like to see what I could do, yeah. But my, my, my first love will always be Priest, you know, and, you know, the, we've, we've, we've got so much work ramping up. Yeah. And with Priest, everything goes in like a three-year cycle, which is crazy, but it is the way it works at, at this point for a band like Priest. Most bands at this point, it's a three-year cycle because, it, you know, from the moment you finish a world tour, which can last two years, and you give yourself a bit of time to take a breath. Then you start writing, and then you start recording, and then you do promo, and then he's ready to do a tour, and finish the tour, and there's three years of your life gone. You know, so I'm not complaining, I'm just, I'm just saying that it's trying to find the space for all of those other cool things to happen. But thank you for, for mentioning that, um, that moment, and maybe it will return. Thank you. Thank you so much. Fastest question ever. Quick, Thank go. You. So um, I married into metal 26 years ago, and we produced the future of metal now. But my question is, earlier in the interview, you had said that music had transcend- transcended throughout time when you had started without the use of technology. Would you say now that technology and social media has produced something positive or negative for the future of metal? And I'd like to say thank you to MI for allowing my family and I to be a part of this amazing interview. Thank you. Um, here's the thing. I think if you'd have, if you'd have asked that, that question to a musician in the 50s, they'd probably say what I'm going to say now is that, you know, you, you have to be aware of the, advance, the advantages of technology. Um, like I mentioned a bit earlier about when Hendrix was turning things up on them because Jim Marshall made the Marshall amps. You couldn't do that before at that level with that sound. And so that was an advantage that, that technology um, can give you. The, the downside is when you, when you move away from playing in the studio onto uh, tape, reel to reel, you know, and if you fuck up, you have to start again, you know. Now you don't have to do that with Pro Tools, which we, we all use, even priests use uh, Pro Tools. So there's this terrible trap you can fall into called cut and paste. You cut and paste things, you know, and you really can take the soul and spirit out of a song by doing that. If you, you really should, as a, as a musician, just me saying what I want to say, if you, you should be able to play through the whole thing, you know. I mean, I know when Scott does his drum tracks, he plays through the whole thing, and then he'll play it again, you know. It's the same with me when I do my vocal takes. I'll sing the entire song, take a, a break for a couple of minutes, and I'll sing it again. You know, and I'll maybe do five or six different takes. And then I might cut and paste if I have to, because, you know, the performance is always, the inflection of a vocal performance should and generally does change from take to take. And you're really looking, trying to get the best out of 
out of something. So sometimes I'll cut and paste and put it together and I go, that's the vocal thing I want to get. And then I'll sing along with that until I get it and then I'll do it for real, you know, keeping it real. But the thing about cut and paste is that it, it, uh, for a younger musician as well, it's like a fast track. It's a fast track to making a song. And, you know, that might be a good thing if you've only got so much money to spend and so much time in a studio. But uh, it can be a bit of a shortcut on your own abilities. You don't know what you can do until you really, you know, get, get stuck in, you know, and really learn how to play that song all the way through or see what, what sometimes, mis you know, like a, a mistake or something can make something great out of that type of thing. So um, just don't be afraid of it, I think. Don't be afraid of the great advantages of technology. And in terms of social media, it, it's, it's absolutely extraordinary how you can um, utilize social media and, and in terms of connectivity uh, to your fans, like with me and my, my Instagram. At Rob Halford Legacy. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, it's my only addiction. You know, you, when, you, when, you're, when you don't drink and drug, you look for the next addiction. I'm, I'm fucking addicted to Instagram right now. But, um, but anyway, uh, so uh, I just wanted to finish that off with something about... Um, yeah, it's so hard to be a musician right now. It really is tough. I know it is because I speak to musicians, you know. It's so fucking hard. And I, I wish you all the blessings in the world because, because uh, there's so much extraordinary talent here in America particularly that are trying the damnedest to get the break that they truly deserve because they have great things going on. But you're up against this, you know, this thing where there's just no money there now. You, the, the finances for a band, you know, it's so difficult for a band just to put one step in front of another to, just because of the way that the, the business side works. You know, if you're lucky to get a deal, you have to li literally give everything away, you know. It's terrible. You're giving everything away. Uh, and, and I don't think that's fair, uh, but unfortunately, that seems to be the, the, the format. And, and um, But, uh, you know, moving from that depressive tone, what I'm trying to say is that with technology and with social media, there, there are, there are struggles involved, but there's also the upside and the greatness of it. So for any, any musicians here tonight that are, you know, going through that type of challenge, my big thing is don't give up. Never give up. Never give in. Just keep doing what you do, you know. Because, you know, we all, we all want the two of us. We all want the, 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 all the great things. But the, the, the heart of it is, if you're in a band, it's the greatest thing in the fucking world to be in a band. You know, to be with your bandmates, to be jamming. Even if you're just playing one club every month, every whatever. It don't matter. It's the greatest, it's the greatest thing in the world. And if you're, if you're persistent, if you have something that's fresh and original and attractive, because of social media, particularly in the technology associated with that, you will be discovered, you will be found, you know. Even though you might be awake at night going, we're not going to make it, we're not going to make it. Well, believe me, if you've got that special something, you will make it. And I just wish you all the luck in the world for, for getting to that special place. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you, everybody here, for coming tonight. Um, I have to say...
It's uh, August, which means you have a birthday coming up, I believe. So happy early birthday to you, Mr. Halford. Uh, I'm Ryan Downey. This is Rob fucking Halford. Thank you. This fucking priest. Thank you, guys. That does it for this episode of Speak and Destroy, Speak and Destroy Episode 4. Speak and Destroy is part of the Pop Curse Podcast Network. Please check out our other podcasts, Pop Curse with Ryan J. Downing, that's me, No Prize from God, conversations about belief, unbelief, and everything in between, and check out the past episodes of Speak and Destroy, Episode 1 with M. Shadows of Avenged Sevenfold, Episode 2 with Mark Eglinton, author of the new biography on James Hetfield, and episode three with Blasco, bassist for Ozzy Osbourne and former longtime bassist for Rob Zombie. Follow Speak and Destroy on Facebook, Instagram, and Speak and Destroy underscore on Twitter. Follow me on Twitter at Ryan Downey and on Instagram at Superhero HQ. You guys have been great, and I've been Ryan J. Downey. (laughs) 